Okay, everybody, we've got an amazing interview for today in our This Week in Climate Startup segment. And I'm going to join Molly for it. VC legend John Doerr is back on This Week in Startups for his second appearance. And he joins us with his co-author, Ryan, to talk about their new book, Speed and Scale. It is. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's so great. It's Have such it. a great interview. You're going to love it. And before that, we've got another edition of VC Sunday School where Jason is going to break down cap tables, not the boring basic part, although I'm still looking for that perfect spreadsheet to calculate the math, but specifically how cap tables can get messy. And then when they get messy, when it's so messy that you just need to walk away like call or call in FEMA to clean it up. Yeah, clean up time. Okay, it's going to be an epic, great show. Stick with us. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by... Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. Bubble empowers people to design and launch their own apps, marketplaces, or tools without needing coding skills or pricey engineers. The first 500 listeners will get one month free on any of Bubble's paid plans from $29 a month up to $529 a month at bubble.io slash twist. And Ravello. Looking to affordably scale your product development with global tech talent in US time zones? Hire vetted remote developers in Latin America with Ravello. Get 20% off for the first three months at ravello.io slash twist. All right, everybody. Welcome to my favorite segment and yours, VC Sunday School. Jake House taking me to church on the basics mm. of the business. I can't tell you, like, people are so excited about this segment, which makes me so happy because it's not just me. Yeah, everybody's going to be in the future. Everybody will have a podcast and a venture capital fund. It's incredible. Like, you know, it's incredible. Yes. And we want you to know that VC school is going to go on after this segment where Jay Cal and I are talking because we have an incredible legend interview today. Legend. It's really arguably briefly the clash of two legends with these two coming together. Ah. John Doerr has a new book out on a tackling the climate crisis called Speed and Scale. We talked to him Great and book. his co-author together. And you just let me put it this way. J. Cal and John Doerr are dropping some really good origin stories here. Uh, yeah. And please don't call me a legend. Uh, you know, like I mean, I might be like. Some people have said like angel Jesus, but that's not for me to say. <laughs> it's not for me to say. I mean, in a way I do give. And I'm selfless about this, and I'm on a mission very similar to Jesus in that way, but not for me to say. <laughs> not for you to say. Did you ever see Get Him to the Greek? <laughs> yep. When Russell Crowe is like, oh I'm God. kind of like an electric, like an electric African yes. Jesus. And Russell, Brand. Russell Brand. Russell Brand. What did I say? Russell Crowe. Oh, not Russell Crowe. Yeah, it's Russell Crowe is you. not in Get Him to the Greek. He's a gladiator. <laughs> anyway, Russell uh, Brand in Get Him to the Greek is amazing work. He starts comparing himself to Jesus, but he says, it's not for me to say, but you know, I'm kind of like an electric African Jesus. We'll uh, probably okay, have to, to stop blaspheming at some point here. At some but point, but it is Sunday church. It's Sunday. Uh, but give me another 10 years before we it's call Sunday school. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, anyway, we're going to talk about it. this and then, yes, there's going to be great stuff coming up. So first I want to talk about some basics and then we're going to talk about, we've got two topics two here. Two topics. First one. One of them is going to go quickly. The, the fundamental of 
investing is the cap mm-hmm. table, of course, sure. where you figure out how many share, how much ownership everybody has in a company and yep. at what price. Mm-hmm. But what is becoming interesting to me about cap tables or capitalization tables is that recently I've been part of a couple conversations where we talked about whether the cap table was too messy. And so yeah. I kind of want to understand what are red flags that you can find inside a cap table? Sure. When is it too messy? What can happen that even makes it messy? How does it get messy? Who's throwing their underwear all over the cap table? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. So uh, it's pretty simple. At the early phases of a startup, um, the equity is precious and you need to have the founders really incentivized and the team incentivized uh, to keep uh, building the company because it's going to be a 10-year journey. Now, when a company's Mm -hmm. public, people can trade the shares freely and it's a different dynamic. But in the earliest part of uh, of the journey, what founders can do is they need money, maybe they're a bit naive, and they sell the equity very cheap uh, and very often. And uh, in fact, there was this whole brouhaha is, you know, Y Combinator worth it now that they're adding the second check and they own 10% of the company. And we talked about that on previous uh, episodes. But, you know, 7% to an accelerator doesn't really break the cap table, because the cap table at the accelerator phase would look like 7% to the uh, folks uh, at Y Combinator or Techstars or even ours launch, we take 6%. Then you maybe would earmark 10 to 15% for employees. Let's call it 15%, really super generous. 15 okay. plus 7, 22%, 22 from 100. Uh, you know, now you're sitting at 78% of the company is owned by the founders. Okay, how many founders are there? Okay, there's four. They own roughly 20% each. They, you know, oh, there's two of them. They own 40% each. Great. Now they raise a seed round. They do, they dilute 15% again. Okay, now you've got, 15% uh, taken from 80% or so. So you're taking off roughly 12 points there. Now it goes down. And you know, maybe the founders are at 70%, 72%. If there's two of them, they own 36% each. Okay, they're still in the game. Mm-hmm. 20% reduction again, and then another 20% reduction. Okay, they went from 35% each down 20%, minus seven, you're at 28%, another 20% in the next round. Okay, so you start seeing what happens. Five rounds of funding, three rounds of funding, on average, 15, 20%. You can put this all into a spreadsheet. And what you'll find in a two founder company, which is most often if they split it equally, that by the time you get public, Larry and Sergey own 10%, or Zuckerberg owns 20%, or Elon owns as a solo founder, 15%, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Things get diluted. And then hopefully you have a billion or multi billion dollar company. And you each own 10%. And then sometimes like um, famously Aaron from Box, I think owned only 4% when it went public and people were like, oh, it's too low. Mm. And it was like, he was like, I'm fine. It's worth, you know, 5 million. I got $200 million. I'm good. Don't, don't feel bad for me. Um, so now imagine a scenario where uh, somebody sold 20% of the company to, I don't know, their friends and family. Mm-hmm. And they sold, they gave 25% to a dev shop. Now we've lopped off 45% of the cap table. And the two founders own give 15% to their team. Now they're at 40% each, 40%, Mm -hmm. 20% each at the start. Right. And then you start doing this 20% dilution. What VCs will do is say, there's not enough equity for them. They need to be over 50%, you know, after the seed round. Some might say 70%. Why is that? So that they have enough control or motivation or both? Motivation. Motivation. Because they don't want them to quit. Because what happens sometimes is a founder owns 10% of the company in the series B. And they're like, you know what, I'm going to start a new company. I sold some of my shares in secondary, I got $5 million in the bank. 
I'll start a new company and this time I'll do it right. And I'll may, I'll keep ownership of 60 or 70%. Mm. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll be a solo founder, right? And that is uh, why people look at these. And then there's also a little bit of animosity. A VC might look at it and go, why did this person build like the, the really crummy MVP for the app and take 20%? Well, when you're a founder and you have nothing and you're like, this dev shop will build my app and I just got to give them 20%. Great. It gets me in the game. So what we do and other venture capitalists will do is we'll say, wow, this looks really messy. Here's two choices. One, we'll invest a million dollars, but we want to do what's called a founder refresh. The founders own 30% now. We want to award the founders 30% more of the company. And we want that to dilute the previous investors, not us. So uh -huh. that will occur before we put our million in. We're going to put our million in to buy 15% of the company, but we want all of you to take a 30% hit. We're going to double the amount of shares for the founders, but we're not putting our million dollars in. It's a little bit gangster, but it's also a little bit pragmatic. Um, right. You will see this happen later on. Sometimes uh, venture capitalists will use this technique in a nefarious way. I've had this happen two or three times where in order to win the deal, they'll say to the founder, hey, you're at 40%. I'll invest, but I'll insist that you get 10% more, or you get 25% more, we get you up to 50 points. And it will come out of all those VCs and angels, and the accelerator that got a better deal than we did. Um, so screw them. Mm -hmm. And then the founders like, okay, I'm going to take the deal with this person, right. because they're giving me yay. free equity. Yep. And what I always say in that situation is, okay, let's, uh, let's bifurcate, let's separate these two moments. Employee comp will be done by the board. After we do this financing round. And sometimes I win that argument, sometimes I don't. In other but, words, if we are going to give the founder 10%, you invest your money, and then it, you make that decision with your receiving 10% dilution, mm -hmm. which would seem more fair, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. If you listen to This Week in Startups often, you've heard me talk about Odoo Suite of business apps a lot. Well, they are going to give you your first app free or ever and $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. Here is why Odoo is great for startups. Their suite of business apps helps run your entire company on one platform, and they'll streamline workflows by bringing all your information together. This eliminates annoying repetitive tasks like entering data across multiple platforms. Plus, if you only need two or three apps to optimize your workflow, that's all you're going to pay for. Odoo won't charge you for apps you don't use. Odoo offers over 30 main apps and over 16,000 apps from their open source community. Their apps include bookkeeping, sales, CRM, website builders, and more. So again, your first app is free forever. But Odoo is also offering you a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack, which you can get at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O -O dot com slash twist to get that $1,000 right now. Okay, so among the red flags that you might see in an otherwise promising startup, where does a messy cap table sit? Like how big a problem is that? Because it actually sounds like it's pretty fundamental. I'd say it comes up in the stage where we invest, you know, the accelerator stage and early one out of 10 times, one out of five times, you know, it, it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and then it it is only uh, so broken if like, let's say the founders own under 60%, under 50% at that earliest stage, that's when it's really broken. And yeah. it's pretty easy to fix because the people who invested early, if they did get some crazy deal, we might say to the dev shop, hey, you own 20%. This company's not getting financed by these famous people, unless you go down 5% ownership, and we'll pay you 250k for that 15%. 
which is what you would have gotten paid if you had built the app. So now you own mm-hmm. 5% of the company and you got made whole. It would have cost 250 to make the app. We'll give you the 250. And I've seen that actually work. Have you ever been pushed out of a Surge Dog asks, actually, no to gang Surge Dog. Have you ever been pushed out of a big position by one of these deals? Not a big position, but I have been diluted significantly when somebody did that. Mm-hmm. And it was so underhanded um, that I basically wrote off the company. And the founder let it happen, so I wrote off the founder too. Wow. I, you know, the way I look at it, Molly, is in this game, it's about morals, ethics. And yeah. I always feel like if I'm going to have your back, you've got to have mine. And if you're going to screw me, I'm just got other companies to focus on. And I, one mm-hmm. of the things I learned in life is the people that screw the people who help them get here, they just wind up screwing everybody along the way. And they're so close minded. They're so petty that they wind up failing. Because mm-hmm. what we do is about making everybody rich and everybody having equity and growing the share price together. What this manipulation is doing is we're saying, you know what? Instead of us all winning together by increasing the share price, we're going to dilute your shares while giving us more. The better thing to focus on is let's just raise the share price. If the shares have prices at a dollar, let's get it to two so everybody doubles their money. But I can Instead totally saying, see then yeah. why a company with a cap table that has a really low founder ownership percentage is a big red flag because you know that then there's the potential, even if they just made a mistake, right? They just did it wrong because they're they did it wrong. Typically, but they did it wrong. Yeah. If you invest and you end up in a position where a future mm-hmm. investor might come along and try to dilute you, I could see why it's a red flag. Like doing it, this is a case where doing it wrong could cost you an investment from a VC who's like, you know what, this is going to be a mess down the road. Yeah. And I don't want to have that fight. And, and so VCs are very good at cleaning this up because they have a chip stack and they'll just do a secondary offering, which we talked about in other VC schools. So this is where a secondary comes in. And so we recently were going into a deal. It was a little bit of a messy cap table. We wanted to put a million and a half dollars in. We had that much demand from the syndicate and from our um, uh, fund. So, but they only had like a million available to us. And we said, well, what if we gave you 500K and you offered it to the early angels and early employees? and did a secondary offering for them. And then we would retire those shares and then issue ourselves, in this case, preferred shares, would that be of interest to you? And they were like, sure. And so those people got liquidity, it was at a nice valuation, maybe 15 $20 million. And so the people who invested at one to $4 million were getting this great return. And they had been in the company for four or five years, because it was meandering trying to find product market fit a couple of pivots, you get the idea. Yeah. So it's it's you can clean it up, but you need everybody to want to clean it up. Yep, totally. And there can um, be bad feelings. So it's a negotiation. I feel like we should leave it there and toss to John so. Doerr and his wonderful co-author. Oh, because what an interview. This is like a are, listen to it twice. Listen, listen to, this to it twice. twice. And you're going to get some VC Sunday School out of the interview, too, on top of all of the other for fascinating sure. conversation about, frankly, the freaking roadmap that they put out for how to solve the climate crisis. So without further ado, John and Ryan and Jay Callen Molly. Learning. Chopping it up. Chopping it up. You know, every year or two, we get to have a legend on the pod. And today, for a second appearance, John Doerr's here. I mean, to give John Doerr an introduction, Molly, is uh, it's almost disrespectful, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's the chair of Kleiner Perkins. You might know some of the companies he invested in and helped build over the years. Google, Amazon, Intuit, Netscape, Twitter, Uber. I mean, the list goes on and on. And... uh what a storied history, uh, came to Silicon Valley in 1975, got an internship, uh, joined Intel as they invented the 8-bit microprocessor. I mean, he basically has been here for the entire history. 
And uh, we're really excited to have him back on because he wrote a book, another book, and uh, he's got his co-author with us. So, Molly, let's introduce the co-author here. Exactly. A legend in the making, Ryan <laughs> Panchadsaram, the technical advisor to John Doerr, also co-founder of the United States Digital Response in response to the COVID crisis. Previously, deputy CTO of mm, the United States. Okay. From 2014 <laughs> to 2016. <laughs> We are delighted to have both of you because along with co-author Angeli Grover, you have written a new book on tackling, taking, John, of course, your legendary OKR methodology and bringing that to the climate crisis in a new book called Speed and Scale. Welcome both of you, first of all, to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, so let's talk about the climate, I guess, and why you felt uh, we should write the book, John. Uh, what is the state? of the climate now, and you've been on this for decades. Mm -hmm. Are you more optimistic now, less optimistic? Obviously, you believe in the power of technology. But you know, I vacillate sometimes I see incredible progress, Tesla, fusion, maybe some people are even considering building nuclear power plants again. And then sometimes I see what's happening in the weather, and the fires we have in Northern California and the snow receding, uh, you know, in Tahoe, and I get super depressed. Are you depressed, enthusiastic, somewhere in between? Well, the state of the world is our planet is in peril. And so the headline is that what we're doing is not enough. It's not nearly enough. It's not aggressive enough in its ambition or its sense of urgency. Uh, ha having said that, doing the research for this book, and it involved hundreds of interviews and uh, detailed fact-checking, uh, assembling really the best thinking of experts around the world, uh, led me to the view that I'm hopeful. I may not be optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And there's an important difference between those two. What's your, your view, Ryan? Uh, my view is that so much has changed in the past just three years, right? If we tried to write speed and scale three years ago, so many things wouldn't be true, right? We are, Jason, in this environment where you've got incredible publicly traded companies that are in the clean tech space, the end phases, the beyond meets, the Teslas. You've got solar and wind finally at you know a price that's cheaper than natural gas and coal, right? These are projections that folks like Al Gore were saying was going to be true, and now they are. And so you've got this momentum on our side. And so for me, that's the hopeful, hopeful side. You're starting to see the signals that so many people have preached were to be coming true at some day, and, and they're here. Well, and this is... Um such a useful book at this exact time when you have, for example, brand new investors like me trying to build climate tech portfolios at very mainstream funds like Launch, helping to normalize this conversation, which I think is really valuable. And here you come with a manual that, among other things, you know, to that point about fact checking and the, the sheer technicality of it, attempts to quantify this problem in a way that, frankly, makes it less depressing and scary and more easy to tackle like when you give us notes on a napkin we could do that which i think john is kind of the whole point right of okrs make it first quantify the problem so that you can start to work on solutions but it's so why is it not that simple all the time well i think we have lots of goals and lots of targets and when we set out to write the book we said what we'd like to contribute is a plan it's a kind of blueprint it's a field manual and the the big objectives are really clear, clear, carefully chosen, and they're each supported by a half dozen or so what Andy Grove at Intel called key results. 
which are very specific, time-bound, measurable uh, ways to tell that we're making the progress that we need to. Uh, so all in all, there's six big areas where we can and must reduce emissions. We've got to do that on a timescale. And so there's four accelerants, ways to go faster, six objectives, four accelerants. And all, all in, there's some 55 or so of these measurable key results. For your listeners, this whole plan is available for free right now on the website, speedandscale.com. So if you pause the podcast, download that, uh, you can follow along our, 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 dis- our, our discussion about this uh, bold plan to merely transform society. That's what we've got to do. I want to tell you for a minute about one of the original innovators in no code, and that company is Bubble. Bubble empowers anyone to design and launch their own apps, marketplaces, or any kind of tool without coding skills or pricey engineers. Yeah, you heard that right. Mary Fox, a launch portfolio founder, quit her six-figure job after she discovered Bubble, and she decided to build a professional coaching startup called Marla. We invested in it. Now, Bubble offers a digital letter and a cloud hosting platform starting at just $29 a month. I kid you not. It's super affordable. Users can build almost any complex web app today using no code, and you can make SaaS tools, social networks, and you can spend way less time building out your MVP, which is great because then you, if you have an MVP, yeah, you can start meeting with investors and you can start getting feedback from customers. And that's how you win in startup land. So Bubble utilizes drag and drop elements in their visual editor. So you can go from an idea to a launchable product in days or weeks, not months. Heck, it takes you months just to find one developer. Bubble handles all the boring stuff like deployment and hosting so you can focus just on your product and your customers. Bubble has over 1 million users and enables over $1 billion in business volume every year. Pretty amazing. So here's your call to action. Bubble is offering one month free on any of their paid plans, ranging from $29 a month to $529 a month. But act fast because they're only offering this deal for the first 500 redemptions. Head to bubble.io slash twist and snag one of those 500 coupons right now. And the first one up here, we've, we've got six gigatons of carbon that could be eliminated on our OKR list from electrifying transportation. This feels like, thanks to Elon uh, and a lot of other people too, but let's face it, he's the tip of the spear here uh, in terms of making electric cars, you know, sexy for people and desirable. Maybe you could speak to what he's contributed here in terms of flipping the script from, you know, people looking at yeah the Prius is like a, kind of a lame car to all of a sudden, just young people, older people, just cross generations want to own an electric vehicle because it's a better experience and it makes them feel good about, uh, you know, uh, uh, themselves for maybe contributing to solving this problem. Well, uh, Elon made a huge contribution, uh, to be sure. He's now built a company that's more valuable than the next 10 automobile companies in the world. And so not only did he make one of the most valuable companies in the world, and not only did he popularize the whole notion of electric vehicles, but he put the rest of the industry on notice. And I guarantee you, Mary Barra, who we interviewed for the book of of General Motors, uh, the CEO of Ford, they're paying close attention to what the market is saying about it. And honest truth is, most people are buying Teslas because they're better vehicles, not for the climate benefits which come from them. So, mm. uh, 
we're we're very clear in our goal setting that for this transformation of society to occur, we've got to dramatically lower costs across every technology that is green. Our friend Bill Gates talks about the green premium. Well, Ryan says we've got to turn the premiums into discounts, green discounts, because that's the only way we're going to we're, we're going to get this done at scale and and at speed. Uh, the, the way I like to put it is, we've got to make the right outcome, the profitable outcome, so it's the probable outcome to right. a, a achieve all of our climate goals. Uh, Ryan, why don't why don't you cite a couple of the key results? in yeah. the electrification of transportation. Sure, of course. So Molly, Jason, a lot of your listeners know about OKRs, right? They have a set of key results that you know we've picked. One of them is around price parity, right? We have to get to a point by 2024 where a fossil fuel vehicle, uh, sorry, an electric vehicle is price parity with a fossil fuel vehicle and then continues to get cheaper, right? If that doesn't happen, this green premium exists and the market, you know, forces don't take control. Another KR that we have as well, too, is tracking the miles driven on the road. Are they fossil fuel? Are they uh, electric? That's the real measure if the gigatons have been reduced. So this price parity one is telling us if we're on track. And then the miles one is truly where the reductions come from. And so we have a handful of key results that capture that six gigaton drawdown. And we've done that for each of the sectors, not just in transportation, but for the grid, for our food system, for nature. Right. If you run us through those, if you wouldn't mind the the O's in OKR, because you do have six of them, and then we can sort of dig into the key results. Well, I, then... well, I wanted to double click just on the the miles question there. Right? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. we, uh, is is what's happening now is we have a lot of rich people buying Teslas and other electric vehicles, and then maybe the cars that are on the road more often, cabs, taxis, trucks. They're the ones that really need to flip. We need to get every taxi, every Uber, every Lyft, every DoorDash to be electric because they're the ones who are putting the high mileage on the roads. The, the, uh, you're right about the mileage piece. So, you know, the Bloomberg NEF folks have projected out, right? Their best curves show that the number of fossil fuel miles driven today hmm. will stay the same till 2040. For that fact, Jason, while their number of drivers will grow on the road, those will buy EVs, they're still hmm. buying fossil fuel vehicles. And so unfortunately, we're still faced with this fact that we won't see a reduction until 2040. And so we need to get to work. But there's hopeful signs as well, too, right? If you look at the pace of EV sales, right, as percentage of all cars sold, you know, in 2020, it was 3%. You know, every year before that, it was just two or one or barely nothing right before 2015. Last year, sorry, 2021, it got to 6%. And then last year, we closed out at 10.5% wow. of cars sold or electric. Like that mm. curve looks like worldwide. something we, worldwide, that's a it's curve incredible. that we're looking for. Yeah. Exponential growth is real, but you're right, Jason, we got to get these fleets off the road. The turnover is real. One of the recommendations we make in the book is if you can afford it, right now is the time to switch. Do not buy another fossil fuel vehicle uh, that stays do. on the road. There's you also... Asked you, yeah, you, 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 you did ask about these six big objectives. Yeah, let's what do I that. Let's to, get to go through the structure for a second. We, right? we, ought to, we ought to go through those. But I want to preface it by saying any one of these is a world, it's a realm, it's a book, it's a docu-series all unto itself. And they all have to happen in parallel. So this, 
this is a mobilization, a transformation for which the best analogy is the mobilization around World War II. You know, for four years, the U.S. stopped making automobiles and appliances. And in those factories and with that infrastructure, what we made were uh, warplanes, war airplanes and battleships, 280,000 aircraft. That same kind of transformation is required across six big objectives. Number one, electrifying transportation. Number two, decarbonizing the grid. That means powering our electricity through renewable sources like wind and solar and safe nuclear. Number three, there's seven gigatons to be gained by fixing our food systems. That means lowering the consumption of beef and dairy, not eliminating them, but just lowering them, and then reducing the emissions that come from how we farm, whether it's rice or other uses of fertilizers, and food waste. 35% of the food we produce is wasted. We need to cut that number down. Objective number four is to protect nature. For example, stop deforesting the Amazon. There's seven gigatons of emission reductions in the plan there. The fifth, one of the hardest, is cleaning up industry. That's how we make steel and cement. Steel and cement are vital to our developing world. We're not going to stop making them. We've got to find low-carbon ways to do that. The sixth and most ambitious of all these is removing the carbon that we can't eliminate. Whether we do that with nature-based solutions like planting more trees or growing kelp, or engineered removal, we call it, direct air capture, literally sucking the carbon out of the atmosphere, which I want to emphasize today is impractical and uneconomic. We don't have a way to do this today, though there's a number of ventures that are funded and vigorously pursuing it. So six objectives, transportation, the grid, food, nature, cleaning up industry, and removing carbon, and then four accelerators. Do you want to touch on those, Ryan? Yeah, of course. So the objectives that John covered get us from the 59 billion tons of emissions down to zero. But we got to make that happen faster, right? That could happen by 2100, but we need it to happen by 2050. And not just that, we need to cut emissions in half by 2030, right? The end of this decade. And so there are four objectives there. We call these the accelerants. We've got to win the policy and politics, right? We got to make sure mm. that policies are passed, not just commitments made, the follow through and money come from that. We've got to turn movements into action. Everywhere from the ballot box to the boardroom, we need candidates elected that believe in this. We also need CEOs to commit to making their companies uh, net zero by aggressive targets. The third is around innovation, right? How do we get these incredible talk technologies down the cost curve, turning that green premium into the discount? And then, of course, fourth and finally is around investment. We need to deploy more R&D or venture capital and more project finance to see this transition happen. So those are the four accelerants. If you're looking for really qualified international developers without the crazy time difference, or if you just want to scale product velocity without sacrificing quality, Ravello is the answer. Ravello is a talent platform that matches you with vetted full-time remote developers in Latin America who work in U.S. time zones. Plus, these developers are more cost-effective 
compared to hiring in the U.S. So your engineers can collaborate in real time and you'll get matched with vetted candidates within three days. After they find the talent for you, they'll handle everything else like payroll, taxes, benefits, all that stuff. So you can hire internationally without the massive logistical overhead. And you know what it is like I've had to hire people internationally. It's so much work. And that's what Revelo does great. Their engineers are full time and embedded in your team like normal employees. They're proficient using AWS, Rust, Ruby, React, Python, Node.js, and more. And their customers include GitHub, Foursquare, Carter, Indiegogo, and Kickstarter. I mean, this is like a who's who of amazing technology companies. So go to Ravello.io slash twist and mention twist to get 20% off your first three months. Plus, they offer a 100% risk-free 14-day trial period. If you're not satisfied, you pay nothing. So head to Ravello.io slash twist and mention twist to get that 20% off. That's R-E-V-E-L-O dot I-O slash twist. Well, it seems like two of those are what are directly relevant to us and our audience. And there are, yeah. of course, key results around all those things. But, you know, let's bring this home to us in some ways, because there are real questions, I think, about how we deploy capital, how we deploy it soon enough, and and where we place the big bets. Like, is it the goal of this book to say, if it's not in one of these six categories, if it doesn't meet the filter of one of these six objectives, let alone its key results, keep stepping, don't look at it. You know, like from your investor lens, John, are you saying this is a, this is a filter for you? This is where you can deploy capital to the best possible effect. Well, this this may sound harsh, but uh, we're fast running out of time. And so our mantra is go for the gigatons. Mm -hmm. Do not get distracted by bright, shiny objects. Mm -hmm. We need individuals to change their light bulbs to LED bulbs if they haven't. But the time for individual action, which is necessary and frankly assumed, uh, has passed. Mm. We now need collective action. We need leaders in every walk of life to invest or to innovate or advocate or galvanize or catalyze collective action because that's the only thing that will get us at scale to cut our emissions in half by 2030. Half by 2030, a 50% reduction in a growing world where growing emissions means per compound numbers, we've got to reduce emissions 8% in this great year of 2022. And then again, 8 more percent in 2023 and 24 and 25 every year between now and 2030. Those are the laws of the compound numbers. Yeah. Molly, when do you think the last time is that we reduced emissions on our planet? Oh, I mean, it has to be pre-industrial, right? It's never, never happened. It's never happened. I was oh, going to guess never. Great. <laughs> so, so what do you think are the odds that we're going to cut emissions by 50% by 2030? Yeah. It seems low. We're going to need to really act in unison. And that's, I guess, one thing I wanted to double click on you uh, with you, John. You know, policy movements, innovation, investment. Got it. We look at something like nuclear, right? And... I remember when I was nine years old, you were, I think, 28, 29, John, uh, the No Nukes concert. And I saw Bob Dylan. I didn't go to it, but I remember Bob Dylan and all these folks, Bruce and the E Street brand. They were like, hey, no nukes. This is bad. And they had good intent. After Fukushima, the Germans started shutting things down. Again, good intent. But I got to think, if we want to think big here, 
nuclear has to be a major part of this. And we see uh, our guy, Billy G, is putting a lot of money into his uh, nuclear companies. There's a lot of innovation in that space. But policy and movements, it does seem like nobody is anti-nuclear anymore. But what's the policy here in the United States? Why are we not building 25 nuclear power plants? And it seems like China is, understands this. France understands it. France is 80, 90% nuclear. T tell me, John, if you, if you could wave a magic wand and make nuclear a major part of this plan, would it be uh, one of these things that could actually reduce 8%? Um, nuclear is part of the plan. Uh, it will not scale just the physics of building new nuclear power plants rapidly enough to have a meaningful impact on climate until 2040. So uh, nuclear has some amazing qualities. It can be located anywhere. It, it's available 7 by 24. It's baseload power. Um, and we have starved this sector of the innovation economy for far too long. Uh, the book highlights work being done not only in safe nuclear fission, but also nuclear fusion, mm. that we generate heat and therefore electricity in the same way that the sun does. But I think we have to look to solutions that will scale more quickly mm. to get to a 50% reduction by 2030. Brian, you have any thoughts on nuclear? I mean, these small modular yeah. reactors seem like such a game changer. And I, I just got to think at some point, the people who are anti-nuclear are going to look at this and say, you know what, we got to put more of these around town, we got to put more of these around um, and have essentially free energy. I mean, the I don't understand why France gets this. The French do not seem like the most, you know, <laughs> uh, techno uh, embracing culture, no offense to my French listeners. But if the French could go 80% nuclear, why can't America go 80% nuclear or Germany or any of these countries? China seems to be on their way. What do you think, Ryan? I mean, the, the tides are changing, right? Like yeah. 10 years ago, there would still be, you know, all of us on the call might be negative on nuclear, but I think we've learned how safe it can be. This whole category of Gen 4, right? All the mm -hmm. reactors that exist are in this Gen 3 bucket. And so for any of the innovators out there, you go down this pathway of what Gen 4 means. It's all the other approaches that are safer. Right. The, the message we try to push in the book is that we both need the now and the new. Mm. Right. So to cut emissions in half by 2030, deploy all the solar, all the wind, all the EVs, get the batteries like storage pieces out there. But that's only going to get us maybe 70 percent of the way. Right. For that last 30, we need long duration storage that doesn't exist. Jason, we need the nuclear power plants that you're talking about to exist, to fill in that you know, 10 or 20% part of a grid. Mm. And so I think with the urgency that we can is to, one, fund companies that are doing great work in this space, but to really clear up the regulatory hurdles in the United States, right? I do not believe a new mm. style power plant has been approved yet. And so I think it's this question of how do you get the U.S. back into the mode of saying yes to these projects and doing it safer? From page 248 of the book, Nuclear is the only carbon-free energy source that can reliably deliver power day and night through every season, almost anywhere on Earth, that's been proven to work at large scale. Who am I quoting there? Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Yeah. Yep. What's, what's the obstacle? It still costs too much. And so we haven't invested in R&D. We haven't invested in deployment. 
There's monies in the infrastructure bill. We're commencing the building of one of the first new nuclear plants in Wyoming, Terra Power, with, with, with the Bill Gates venture. Yeah. So it will be part of the solution. We just have to focus on those that can be done at scale and with speed. I had a crazy idea for it, which was if any, if the people around the nuclear plant approve it, they all get free energy. Like, you know, like, cause that's always been one of the things I don't want it in my neighborhood. Just so a if you minor just regulatory bribe, just bribe them. Like it's free, right? Like if you, if you live near it, you get free or even like you get like a, a tax break, like in, they give uh, essentially a UBI in Alaska for, you know, the oil revenue. I just think economics could also play a role here. Um, economics and policy is incredibly yes. important. And as yeah. you probably know, we're right now debating a complete revision of the incentives in California, the fifth largest economy in the world, for rooftop solar. Mm. The investor-owned utilities and some of the environmental justice advocates have come together and made a proposal, which the governor's put on hold for further debate, that would basically stall that industry, remove the incentives. So you have to be adept not just at inventing and scaling these innovations and technologies, not just at raising money for them, but getting all the policy levers yeah. aligned for World for War II-like deployment. Yeah, and then, you know, it's so gross because they're all in the pockets of big oil, coal. And I just don't know how these people sleep at night and how they can look at their kids and their grandkids knowing that just to stay in office, they're willing to take money from an oil company or a coal company. I mean, in the face of all this, how could you fight against solar? How could you fight against Tesla? How could you fight against nuclear? I mean, how do these people sleep at night? It's just so infuriating. Jason and I had this conversation just the other day, actually, about the utilities and these incentives and incumbents and, and the fact that utilities themselves, not to derail us completely because we're about solutions here, but the fact that you do have incumbent interests who, in the case of utilities, could be the ones to turn this on, right? Yeah. I mean, they could be the ones to just say, we're decarbonizing our grids. We're turning this on at scale. Um, and we're not. And that makes me wonder when you look at these accelerants, which of the four could be the biggest decelerant, right? Is, is public policy the mm. blocker? If you had to pick one of the four that could stop us, not cold, hopefully, but too much, you know, I'll which be, I'll, I'll be interested in Ryan's answer. My okay. answer, my answer to your question is, just what you proposed. It's that public policy is the biggest impediment. Yeah. Right now, the innovators, the businesses, the investors, the impassioned youth, private sector are well ahead of the public sector, and for good reason. It's hard for a political leader to make pledges that his population won't support. Mm -hmm. So key result number 8.1 in the all-important objective of turning movements into action Key result 8.1 says, we're going to make the climate crisis a top two voting issue in the top 20 emitting countries by 2025. Hmm. What's a good example of that? Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager who uh, in 2018 was alone outside the parliament striking from school on Fridays to draw attention to the problem. A year later, by 2019, She'd sparked a million-person demonstration in a hundred cities around the world, and importantly, not just the demonstration, but made the climate crisis a top-two voting issue in the European nations. It is not top-two in America. It is oh, yeah. not top-two in China. It is not top-two in India. I, I, I say that 
because it's a challenge, because it's an opportunity. And yeah. our plan calls for that to be changed. Mm-hmm. Let me just look at coal miners. Like we're talking about coal miners in every election. And then I looked it up at some point. It's like, there's less than 50,000 of them. Yeah. Like, how about we pay them to like learn another trade? Uh, or we just pay them to stop going into coal mines. Like we're really, that is the issue. Like we're going to save coal miners jobs. Like it's 42,000 jobs. Like we've had millions of people on unemployment during the pandemic. Like we can absorb 42,000 people not digging coal out of the ground, but then these politicians get some sort of incentive. And then all of a sudden they think coal miners have to be protected. Coal miners are, if you want to protect coal miners, get them out of the coal mines. That's in their best interest. These politicians here, I think I would agree. I'm with you, John. I think this policy and these politicians are the blocker here in America. And it has to be that they don't get an office unless they back clean energy and climate change. You well, know, fighting I, I, climate change. I want your audience to know that this is a global plan. Mm. And so it, it's certainly written by co-authors in the U.S., but there's 2 million coal miners who work in China. Uh, and yeah. so it's a different trade-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, Those are in, real numbers, in, yeah. In other parts of the world. Key result 8.2 says we get a majority of government officials around the world, whether elected or appointed, to support this drive to net zero. Mm-hmm. That's the mother of all OKRs here. The mother of all objectives is to take net emissions down from 59 gigatons to zero and to do that by 2050. Ryan, what's the blocker for you? What's the we, John had asked, yeah, policy, movements, innovation, investment. The, uh, the blocker is, will be cost, right? It's that mm-hmm. green premium. Mm-hmm. You know, John is talking about policy being the big decelerant. That is totally true. But the other piece of the coin will be, will these technologies still be too expensive, right? And so that's why for the KRs around innovation, they're all around cost. Right. The one for electricity doesn't say pick nuclear or geothermal or solar or wind. We give a cost target. And so we're agnostic. Whichever one of these technologies can work their way down the cost curve and can beat, you know, the fossil fuel equivalent and become cheaper. That's the one that's going to win. Um, to, to your point, Ryan, I, I, you tell me if this is correct, but I was just told by some people in the energy sector that like just in the last 18 months, 24 months, this new solar panels, the cost of putting in a solar power plant just at, became less than a coal plant. That's right. The, you, you look at data from Bloomberg, NEF, as well as IEA, we have finally crossed that threshold. So that means, right, you know, for the power load that's, you know, on top of the curve, you can pull and use solar and wind for that. But, yeah. you know, on-demand power, mm. solar and wind still doesn't fit that completely. There's a big question we get about the developed versus the developing world. Well. Ryan, you know, China emits the most and the developing world is the one that's using coal. I think it's pretty clear. The United States, we are the alpha emitter. We have emitted the most historically, more than double than China has in its history. The Europe is alongside us as well, too. So our message to the United States is we've got to go first. And we do it also for selfish reasons as well, too. If we go first, we get to innovate and invent and scale the technologies Mm -hmm. and industries that matter. And by doing that, it drives down the cost curve and makes it more affordable for the developing world to use it and adopt it. And so that's a big charge of speed and scale. We've got to go first. We've got to innovate and let those industries be ours. John, you, you have a story from solar, call them the solar wars. Well, um, two, two, two stories from the solar wars. 
that are in this book, one, one of which is what a German legislator did when he established something called the feed-in tariff, which basically said for a long period of time, 30, maybe 40 years, German utilities would buy solar at a, at a price, a fixed price, so that people could make investments. Hermann Scheer is this legislator's name. And uh, Germany became the leading place for solar to be deployed. It coincided with a strategic decision that the Chinese made, which was they were going to supply, be the world's leader in solar panels. And that combination of demand and supply is what led to the fantastic reductions, over 90% in the cost of solar. I describe that in the book as Germany's great gift to the world. Mm-hmm. Well. It became so strategic to China that they viewed it as a jobs program. And they indeed provided national funding so that every region, every province of China would have a local solar panel manufacturing champion. And that ran headlong into seven different entrepreneurial groups that my partners and I funded to make new innovative solar companies because the Chinese would sell below cost. When they ran out of money, they would reorganize the company, refund it with more state loans so they could continue as a jobs program. Long story short, all seven of Kleiner's solar panel generation companies were crushed. One survived. Its name is Enphase, today worth some $30 billion. They make the microinverters that make rooftop solar economic. And so, if you take a long view, you understand this requires a lot more capital. You're smart about the incentives or subsidies or national risks that are in place. You can build companies that'll make a difference to the climate and succeed as long-term players in the worldwide economy. But if you're not careful about those things, you can get your head handed to you. Well, I was about to say, mm-hmm. you know, the venture uh, window tends to be a decade per fund. And you have LPs who are, you know, let's face it, based on the industry that you helped create and define, John, they're on this like 10 year, you know, fund cycle. They when they got into solar, they must have looked at it when you were making these bets year seven, eight or nine and said, John, what's going on here? You're, you're the home run hitter. And you're not even on base with some of these companies. What was that like for you in terms of a gut check as an investor, you know, you're making the right bets, but correct me if I'm wrong, the time horizon was different than investing in Google, which, you know, started printing money in year four or five. Uh, the time horizons are very different. And so it raises the bar for the founders, entrepreneurs, and backers to be expert at raising money. You're constantly raising capital is, is something I like to say. Um, it, it ups the ante in terms of the amount of capital that you're going to require. And most of all, I think the rigor, the intellectual discipline to be ruthlessly honest about where the key risks are in any given venture and make sure that they are upfront and removed with the early dollars. And if a venture doesn't fit that formula, it's not appropriate for venture capital and it ought to be funded some other way. Did you, what was it like for you though, on a personal basis as like, Listen, what we do is like gambling, we're placing bets and to like lose every hand for a little bit 
did you start to like wonder like do i not have the mightiest touch or you know it must have been a gut check for you at some point i correct me if i'm wrong well it, it was uh, these were big bets weren't they these these were meaningful in investments meaningful to me as an investor but even more meaningful to the founders and the entrepreneurs for whom it wasn't part of a portfolio it was their careers it's their mission it's it's their passion in life and so frankly i'm a stubborn optimist and we stood by these companies uh, and over the course of about a decade put a billion dollars in some 60 or 70 ventures those investments today are worth three billion dollars so mm. yum yum if we you know beyond beyond me uh, uh it is, is an example of, of of one of those in investments uh nest a successful investment Enphase, which i've mentioned as another one i wonder how never the you know I don't think very many people know. I didn't know until I read the book that your $1 billion in investments were worth $3 billion because the narrative in Silicon Valley became clean tech was a bust. And then there was a lot of fear about reinvesting in this industry for a long time. And I wonder if you can reflect on that. And also, though, talk to us about the risk as investors now of, uh, I don't know, accidentally bringing a Theranos into the world and setting this industry back all over again, you know? Well, I think there's a very low tolerance for Theranos style investing. Right. But and a Solyndra? Like, you know, I mean, there could be a high profile failure and we would hate for that to happen and then make clean tech have a bad name all over again. You, you know, you, you can only lose one times your money. And, and so, uh, I, my partners and I made a bet on Fisker instead of on Tesla. Tesla was a struggling venture at the time we made the wrong choice. It wasn't clear where the funding was going to come from. Deposits from prospective buyers were being used to fund development costs. The government came through with a Solyndra-style loan for Tesla, which Tesla repaid early. And that single investment, the decision to back Tesla or not, the decision to back Google or not, is transformational for the returns of, of, of a leading fund. So, uh, we, we earn good, we earn, we earn good returns for our limited partners, even in spite of having picked the wrong electric vehicle starter. I have a funny story about that. So I'm, I'm friends with Elon, obviously, and I'm talking to Elon and he owed the hundred roadsters that sold out. Uh, but I guess Ray Lane was the guy, uh, you were working with who did the Fisker investment. He had put a deposit down. He had number 16 of the roadsters. And uh, Elon said to me, you know, we're having dinner or something. He says, hey, do you want um, a Roadster? He's like, got an email on his Blackberry. And Ray had said, listen, I don't feel comfortable taking the Roadster. We have the Fisker. So I, he, he basically said, can you take back my deposit? And uh, I said, yeah, I'll take it. Because <laughs> there were only 100 available. And sitting in my garage. That's his, how you got your car? It was Ray Lane's. I have, I have Ray Lane's <laughs> Roadster. <laughs> oh, there's <laughs> it's like a pretty a funny story, right? But I mean, those companies... There were so many moments where Tesla went out of his Fisker. I mean, mm -hmm. it was so dicey, like watching Elon just, uh, you know, be on Crush the it. edge of the cliff mm -hmm. Yes, for I years was brutal. 
I, I think people take for granted sometimes how, you know, you look at Tesla, you look at Enphase, you look at Beyond Meat, you look at Sunrun, the fragile moments in their history, the amount of grit each of those founders, yeah. right? The, like, how thin of a line they were skating on, right? Like, I mean, we're lucky that today we have these role models of companies that we can point people to to show, look what's possible, look at their market cap, look at what it takes. You know, Molly, your point about Theranos, it's like, John's right. The appetite for that is is low these days because it's really about cutting emissions, finding more efficient ways to do things. And then the, the magic silver bullet things, those get put to the side, at least for the sophisticated investors in here that are like, nope, there's an emission I see. And we've got to cut it. I got to know how you were able to make that Beyond Meat bet because I had seen these companies. I was talking to Evan Williams about it because he like is quasi vegan and he was back in those companies. And I was like, when I met with them, they said this is going to be like $16 a hamburger. And I said, wait a second, you're telling me people are going to pay, you're going to charge people $16. Like, well, eventually it'll get down to eight. And I was like, yeah, but you can go to In-N-Out and get a burger for four bucks, five bucks, pretty great. So you're telling me you're going to eat something that tastes like sawdust for sixteen dollars? Like, oh, it's going to be better than sawdust. I was like, I still don't get it. How do you make that bet, John? How did you get the firm around? People will pay more for this burger mm-hmm. than they would pay for a hamburger from you know Five Guys. They'll pay more in transition for a brief yeah. period of time. <laughs> but y- you described the way we made the bet. The only thing you left out was the passion of the entrepreneur. We saw Ah. Ethan Brown. When I first met him, he said, my vision is to create an animal-free McDonald's burger. And guess what's available this very month of this broadcast? The McPlant across Mm -hmm. the country. Incredible. What's interesting about that story as well, too, sorry, John, to jump in there as well, is, uh, you know, not just the passion of the founder, but you have a lot of venture capitalists that listen to this as well too right the passion and fire of an associate mm. you know i'm old Pande, believing that the world was going to be scarce of protein right like it, mm. it takes you know the two to tango in a an adventure environment sorry john you need your internal greta thunberg though right at every company yeah, yeah. yes you know this actually I, I gotta pause on the book and the whole climate change thing and just ask you investor you know 10-year investor to legend what, what have you learned about when you look in the eyes of those founders and you hear them talking and then, John, at some point, your gut just tells you that's the, that's the one. This is, this is the team and you make that bet because you've done it so many times. Do you, is there some signaling you can say to this next generation of investors that like, hey, when you see this, when you feel this, this is when you pull that trigger and you write that check because you got that signaling. Can't be luck. The uh, first criteria that I have, the question that I like to answer as early as possible is, would I mind being in trouble with that founder or not? Because no matter how things unfold, my experience has been we always get in trouble. Something doesn't work out according to the plan. Of course. Uh, then, then, Then there's five factors that I think distinguish the truly great ventures from those that are, are just successful. That's probably a topic for another conversation. No, 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 no. You no, got to give it to us now. No, no, no. you yeah. got to give it to us now. This is, we'll talk about climate, we'll but I got to get a little of that investment of history here. Exactly. <laughs> or just give me some of them off the top of your head. I'll give you some top of head. Give it me starts, some of them. It yeah. starts with technical excellence. And I don't mean published papers or PhDs, but the attitude that we're going to have the best 
technology in the world. And that enables us to recruit and retrain the teams that'll build mm. a really great first electric vehicle. So technical excellence is one. The second is uh, a commitment to outstanding management. And that's when the co-founders really are determined that it's going to take a team of people bigger than themselves to change the world. Uh, the third is strategic focus on a large, unmet, unserved market need. Uh, Jeff Bezos had this at Amazon. Mm. You know, books were the very best first item to sell via e-commerce. But his vision wasn't limited to books, I'll assure you. Not long after we invested, he and I were walking the aisles at Fry's and answering aloud, well, what is there here in Fry's that we wouldn't ultimately sell in Amazon, whether it's CDs or television sets or refer well, we wouldn't sell sell firearms, that's one. <laughs> and we wouldn't sell live animals. But other than that, this 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 was all really pretty suitable for Earth's biggest store. Uh what else? Reasonable financings, that's an important factor. And then finally, mm -hmm. the fifth is sense of urgency. Now, no venture, no founder possesses all five of those in equal measure. But if you believe you wouldn't mind getting in trouble with her and that we can build the strengths where they need to be added as the venture grows, then you've got a real shot at changing the world. D double click on that reasonable financing. Yes, please. I, that the, was my what question is the, too. Because I, I understand financing is critically important. You got to put fuel in the tank. These things are not cheap. And you said sure. you got to have great management, which costs money. But what is right. the reasonable qualifier? Uh, you can raise too much money as well as too little. Um, I think overfunded ventures lose discipline. Uh, but uh, for sure, you don't want to run out of money. That's when you failed. Mm. Yeah. So, game over. <laughs> game over. Game over. So when you look at the funding environment today, and listen, this has been what, 13, 14 year bull run. We, you, we didn't see, I don't think you saw this in any point in your career this long of a bull run. And you see these crazy financings happening and, you know, the amount of performance to financing seems at way out of whack. What do you think? Are you appalled? Are you inspired? Are you like, whoa, Look, I, I, think, I think generalizations don't work here. The specifics yeah. really matter. And, and okay. we can cite a bunch of ventures. For example, we work that were mm -hmm. overfunded and undermanaged. Uh, one, one I was involved in is DoorDash which came to the local commerce, local delivery competition as maybe the last entrant with a lot of capital, but mm -hmm. deployed it. And today are the share leader with the widest selection, the best financials. And so, sorry to say this, it depends. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, when, you, when you started, when you because I know Tony from DoorDash, and then you know this maniac from WeWork, and you look at your framing, reasonable financings, right? And then you say, oh, the ability uh, to have like a sense of urgency, like Tony has a sense of urgency at DoorDash. Yes. Like you just see that in that yeah. entrepreneur. Did Adam Newman have a sense of urgency? No, that guy was distracted by everything. He did not seem focused. He didn't have world-class team around him. He broke all your rules. He was the anti-five. I didn't invest in him. Yeah. Oh, tell me about the meeting. Oh, please. No, it's I didn't, time has passed. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't take the meeting? I didn't take the meeting. Oh, okay. Oh. You're like, huh. Tell me well, your best Bezos story. Come on. There's got to be like, he's, 
he he wasn't always Bezos, or was he always Bezos? Like, w- at what point did you realize this guy is just next level? There must have been a moment where, in your brain, working with him all those years, that you're like, "This guy's an alien. He's on another level." Entrepreneurship was. I, 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 I don't know if it's my best story, but one of my favorites is my first meeting with Jeff, where I uh, headed up to Amazon's first office outside the garage, which was in a a, a two story loft opposite the free needle clinic in a a pretty seedy part of seattle and jeff came bounding down from the second floor to the first floor greeted me with a great big hug and open arms Uh, he and i are both nerds he he from princeton i from rice university computer scientists and he took me on a tour around the place there was one vax 750 which was being (laughs) used yes which was being used to do all the software development with one of his early employees, Shep. Uh, we directed, he directed on top of Sawhorse's doors from Home Depot that were used as staging areas to cross dock the books, which would be ordered the night before from Ingram Micro D. Sure. Which, <laughs> which, which had a distribution center. And uh, Jeff made, if you'll recall, a very fast, high performance website. It mostly worked over dial-up modems. That was the way we got to the internet in those days. But it was fast, and it had the largest selections of books that you could get anywhere in the world. I asked Jeff, "So, what are uh, what are what are the revenue trends?" And I could I could really tell he was the kind of entrepreneur I wanted to work with when he stepped up to his terminal on the Vax system <laughs> and typed in a Unix grep command. Yeah. To get the very answer to my question. Yeah. So. That's, that is next level. Like I, when you don't need to ask somebody, you just have it right there and you just yeah. know your business from the beginning to the end. It's, yeah. I mean, I literally was, to tell another Elon story, kind of relates to your philosophy. I was driving with Elon in my Model X or my wife's Model X and there was some wind noise. He's in the passenger seat. We're driving and he's. He's like trying to do something with the window. And he's like, I know this problem. Like this thing got displaced and this, it's this washer. And he's literally fixing, trying to fix the window while we're driving up the 280. I was like, Elon, I can bring it in for service. Like, I can fix it now. <laughs> it's like, it's okay, buddy. <laughs> it's going to be fine. When, um, when, you, when you first met uh, Elon, did you have the instinct to invest in him? What was, well, your, what, what was, your, what was your thinking? I was not an investor at the time. Of so. Course. But I was just an entrepreneur, right? And so yeah. I, he, I was like, I can introduce you to, he was like, I'm trying to raise some money with this thing. So I was like, oh, let me, you know, email this person, email that person. So I'd emailed a couple people and they were like, a car company? Are you crazy, J. Cow? Like, th- that's, th- that's how people, rich people lose their money is making movies, car companies, you know, <laughs> and sports teams. Like, it's, I mean, it's literally in this book. Hard Venture no. capitalists never invest in something that has wheels. <laughs> yeah. That was the conventional wisdom. <laughs> exactly well you know it's all the conventional wisdom until somebody does it i mean I think the the yeah. uber investment was when I, I introduced uber to 21 people and that's when i just became the first Sequoia scout and i made that investment and i had a very famous venture capitalist someone say who say you know jake i'll invest in this you just got to convince travis to make it enterprise software and to sell it to the cab companies because we don't want to be involved with these drivers and the cars it's like too messy and dirty and think about how many cab companies are. He could sell this to like 100,000 cab companies. And, and enterprise software is like such high margin. And I was like, you realize cab companies are the enemy in this? Like they're capturing all the money. And that's, 
you could take that out and be better for everybody. And he's like, no, no, I never brought it to Travis. I was like, I'm oh, Travis wow. was, he was already on a mission. I didn't want to embarrass this venture capitalist by telling Travis the story, but yeah, that was a crazy That's a great one. story. Well, yeah. you'll recall yeah. around the launch of the Netscape browser, yeah. I was running around the world shooting off my mouth saying the internet had been underhyped and it kicked, yep, up, I kicked, kicked up quite a controversy. And I have a similar message for today. Yeah. And that is, I think the climate crisis has been underhyped, or at least we are underestimating it in two really profound ways. The first is, it is the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century. It's going to create more than 25 million new jobs. The market for advanced, for, for batteries for electric vehicles is estimated at $400 billion per year for the next 30 years. Just think about the size of that number. Correct. That's what it's going to take to transform, to electrify transportation. And so there's multiple companies working at it. Um, but the other way to look at this is if we fail at this, mm. the costs are staggering. The human costs, the economic costs. It's already created tens of millions of climate refugees, people who have to change where they live because of climate change. It's wrecking whole economies. Last year, flooding alone cost China $30 billion, Europe $35 billion. Hurricane Ida in the U.S. now estimated at $100 billion of damages. And so Crazy. you've got to ask the question, how much of this devastation are we going to endure before we accept the fact that it's cheaper to save the planet than to ruin it? Yeah. I mean, it's just so well said. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity for entrepreneurs is so great. Mm -hmm. And just think about how amazing it is to go to work every day and have purpose. And, and that what you're doing is not only going to make money. Sure, that's great. Not only going to, you know, build a big company. That's fine. But, you know, you, you could actually take this. It's not an existential challenge anymore. Like, this is like an acute challenge, as you're saying. Like, cities are going to be underwater. And, and this whole concept that this is being overblown I just don't understand how there are still some people holding on to this is overblown. What do you, what do you say to those, those people, Ryan, when they kind of, mm. there's it, cause we, we, you did bring this at the beginning of the book, like, Hey, there's a lot of facts here to make the OKRs. We need the data. There's people who are denying this is still happening to this day. What, right. what is the way that we deal with that? Cause Molly and I talk about this thing all the time is the denial or there it's not that big of a deal. Well, that's what they shifted to, Jason, right? The yeah. denial is kind of shifting on a spectrum. Before it was, it doesn't exist, this warming isn't happening. Now it's, well, it's happening, but it's not going to be as bad as people say. Or the one that I'm hearing quite often now, it is not worth the economic damage to make the transition, mm -hmm. right? right? Which are all, both those two thoughts are, you know, sure, the world is not going to end. But it is going to certainly be warmer. And with warmer comes global weirding, different weather patterns, mm. economic, you know, migrations of people in areas where like there will be a lot of places in the world where life won't be able to continue as normal. That mm. is a truth mm -hmm. on the economic piece. I think the message that John is saying so clearly is there will be more jobs created because of this. Every country needs to see this as a national priority, mm. because if you don't get ahead of this, you are going to be left behind, right? If you don't invent the industries of the future, someone else will. Mm. Yep. You, you know, one of the things that really struck me as we did the research for the book, and I, I, I dive 
deeper again into the field is the whole notion of uh, climate justice. And climate change amplifies inequities. It makes them worse. Those who suffer the most are those who've done the least to cause this problem, and they're least capable of dealing with it. And so, as history's biggest emitter, the U.S. has got to decarbonize first. We've got to show the world that this is possible, and we've got to drive costs down for everyone else. More broadly than that, the U.S., Europe, and China have got to fund this transition in the developing world's economies because they don't have the money to make it. As we stop using fossil fuels, we're going to see jobs disappear in communities. They're going to be hard hit. They're going to evaporate. And so we've got to get them their fair share of the good paying jobs. In other, in other words, I, I love the closing quote of the book, which is an interview with Laureen Powell Jobs. And she says, you know, John, I think this climate crisis is in fact a great gift. It's, it's, it's the best thing that could occur to humankind to let us deal with these longstanding inequities. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you talk to anybody who's affluent, like, oh, yeah, you know, I lose money on my house in Miami. I'll just move to X other great place. I'll, I'll buy a place in Costa Rica or Cabo. Like, it, that's not affecting you as an affluent person with your second home. It's like an inconvenience at best. Although I do like that the book is so pointed about saying that this is unavoidable. This is the thing that we, you know, it is the only imperative that we have and that nobody's going to be immune to it. I don't know, you know, sort of separately, I don't know how big a bunker you think that you can build if society collapses all around you. It's just not going to work. And it does seem to the people who built vibrant economies off of fossil fuels, we are in a way saying to this next group of people, you don't get that advantage of the cheap stuff you can pull out of the ground. You got to use this more expensive stuff, more complex stuff. and. I understand, I don't agree with, obviously, you know, people saying like, well, we got to use this cheap, the cheapest option. I understand why they're saying that, right? They're a developing economy. They're trying to protect their 2 million coal farm, coal miners, whatever it is. But we do have to recognize that as the West and the people who did admit a bunch to get to, you know, where we are. We're, we're on third base right now. These people are just getting in the game. We have to help them. And you I don't, know, I don't on the coal piece, Jason, you talked about earlier, right? If you go to West Virginia, there is a different sentiment between the coal miner and the coal mm. mine owner, mm. right? The coal mine owners are the ones that want to drag out their revenue streams just for a bit longer. When you look at the coal worker and you do, you know, there was a recent survey done of the fossil fuel industry. More than half of the people say they want to get out and that they see the future is renewables, is the cleaner, greener stuff. Yeah. You know, if an alien, you know, uh, race came to the world, an alien species came here and looked around, they'd be like, you've got the sun. You've also got <laughs> this really hot ball inside Earth that you could get energy from. And you're relying on this black tarish gunk that, you know, your planet took millions of years to create. Like, mm. get over that. Make the transition. And, and that's actually maybe another message to share, too. Is I think for us in the technology industry, we see transitions every 5, 10, 15 years. The energy transitions that have happened historically, Vaclav Schmiel categorizes them very well. They take 70 plus years. Mm -hmm. And so for these leaders in these industries that, you know, sit on top of energy and transportation and others, yeah, that book is a great book. Um, <laughs> I only uh, have this because of Bill Gates's book. And then now I'm, you know. 
Heaven help and us. And the rabbit hole. <laughs> and energy, down the rabbit hole. Energy and civilization is the there book is. that Molly Molly held up. And you know, so for those those leadership teams, they're not used to transitions, right? They can't mm. see. They haven't seen one coming. And I think the message now is: look at the cost curves. Look at what things are getting financed. Look at the hunger of entrepreneurs and innovators. These transitions are coming. It's going to happen during our lifetime. All right. If we could give, if we could give, you could give while I have you, because I'm brand new here, right? There are a bunch of people like me, a lot of people getting into the climate tech investment and startup space. Thank goodness, right? That seems like a net positive. What is your advice, though? Where should we focus our energies and where should we not waste our time? Wow, what a great question. I would focus my energies on the planet. These are the gigatons. I, 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 I wouldn't get distracted by something that won't scale. Right? Yep. The, the, planet size good, solutions. Totally. And there's a good lens that the KRs give, you know, focus you on these challenges, right? Where are the cost targets? Does the innovation that you are going after, can you move it down? Yeah. Right? People will pay a premium up front, right? If, you know, there are government subsidies. It's a performance product, but you got to work your way down. But there's also a um, a graphic we have in the book. It's on 241, which shows the technical quest that the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, this is the group behind Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And these are different technical quests that we haven't solved yet, right? Like next generation nuclear fission all the way to low emission fertilizer. Like there are so many places to disrupt and they're going to take not just incredible scientists and engineers, but they're going to need great operators and people that know how to scale. I'll make a closing offer to your audience, Jason. Yes, sir, please. I'm I'm new in my relationship with Molly, but I really admire the leadership, the vision, what you've done for entrepreneurs over the decades that I've known you. And let me just invite any of your listeners to write to either Ryan or me. I'm John at speedandscale.com. I'm pretty sure Ryan is Ryan at speedandscale.com. And if you've got an idea or a question or you're looking for an opportunity or a direction, uh, we'll return your mail message. Amazing. Uh, That is just the spirit in which Silicon Valley was built. And John, you helped build this place. We're standing on your shoulders. (laughs) And uh, it's just an honor to have you back on the program. I want everybody to just take a moment, load that Amazon, which John helped put on this planet with uh, Jeff. Wouldn't have been here, you know. Capital allocators and entrepreneurs work together. You go do a search for Speed and Scale right now, and there's a drop down there. I don't want you to buy a copy. I want you to buy two, three, four, five copies and just hand them out. Give them to people as a gift. This is a serious situation, and we can do it together. And that's, I think, John, the great gift you're giving everybody is we can get this done together. And uh, you're making it real with the OKRs. You saw those OKRs up close and personal, you know, change companies. And uh, let's do this. Let's change the fate of humanity together. And what a great book. Everybody go buy it. Ryan, thank you. Great to spend thank time you. with you. And, and John, just good to know you, brother. And, and thank you for everything you've done. Uh, and you've always given me great advice myself. So appreciate you, you coming back on the pod. Thank you, Molly. Thanks, guys. All appreciate right, everybody. It. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.